the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This week's The Interview is brought to you by AndrewandTodd.com. AndrewandTodd.com are the world's best lenders for real estate. They are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. You can call them at 888 888-888-1172, 888-888-1172. And please do, no matter what your lending needs are, andrewandtodd.com. And now welcome to this new edition of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Time for the interview with Hugh Hewitt today, talking with Jane Coaston of the New York Times. Good morning, Jane, and welcome. Great to have you on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Hey, how's it going? How are you doing? I am great. You're the only guest I've ever booked, about which I received not one but two emails from two of my three children saying, be nice to Jane. So I have to be very, very nice to you because they are big fans of yours. And I said, oh, look, this isn't like a machete match. This is not... This is not WWE or UFC. It's going to be a fun conversation, but thank you for making time with me. If I could, I'm going to borrow the uh, the description from the Washington Post profile of you in April. Jane is the former political reporter for Vox and MTV, is a registered libertarian who got her start in right-leaning college media and professes, quote, a healthy skepticism of state power. She also happens to be a happily married queer person, a former speechwriter for the Human Rights Campaign, a church-going Christian, and a fitness buff who works out roughly twice a day. I feel very bad there. In November, she joined the New York Times, where she hosts the paper's relaunched opinion podcast, The Argument. It's an excellent podcast. I've listened to a few of them. And I listened to your uh, long chat with Jamie Weinstein. So I did my homework, Jane. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. When you put all of that together, I'm like, yes, I do contain multitudes. <laughs> well, you know, you drop a little scripture into everything. And it's not my first four questions, but I want to stop there. You dropped into this week's New York Times conversation a little Romans, the wages of sin or death. What is your faith background? Are you Catholic? Because you went to St. Anthony's in Cincinnati. I did go to St. Anthony's in Cincinnati. Uh, Father Len, I believe, yeah, he was my my priest for a long time. I would say that uh, I'm a lapsed Catholic, but I also feel like when you're raised Catholic, you never really leave. Because now I have that feeling, um, I always joke with friends because uh, my spouse and I, we go to a Methodist church in D.C. now. But every time I'm like, hmm, you're doing it wrong. You're doing yeah. it wrong. What's going on here? Mm. But um, where, where, where is the Eucharist? So what's your confirmation name? Oh, well, that was actually a funny story. I believe my confirmation name is Joan for St. Joan of Arc, um, because I thought that St. Jane now... All tribute to her, St. Jane created a number of important convents, but it was between a woman who created convents and a woman who, like, fought in war at the age of 13 that was burned at the stake. And I was like, I'm going with Joan of Arc on this one. Joan of Arc's a great choice. I'm Matthew because it was the first name in the New Testament. And when I was your age to get confirmed, you, had, you got it in the third grade, so I just picked the first name in the Bible that I saw. So I went for Matthew, and uh, he's really very badly portrayed in The Chosen. Uh, have you watched that yet on Peacock, by the way? I have not. I have not. Sh should I? 
Yes, it's, it's, you know, I was expecting cheesy and terrible production values. It's not biblically accurate, but it's fun, and I recommend it to you. Jane, whenever I have a first-time guest, I ask them two questions, but your list is five. First question, was Alger Hiss a Soviet spy? Yes. Correct, $100 from Jeopardy. Second question, have you read The Looming Tower? I have not read The Looming Tower. I recommend I it highly. Um, I Yes, I, I, I had a feeling that you might. Yeah, and then my next three are new books which have come out this year. There are three significant books this year. I just want to know if we have any common ground to talk about them. Chaos Under Heaven by Josh Rogan, Joby Warwick's Red Line, and Doom, The Politics of Disaster by Neil Ferguson. Have you read any of those three? I have started Doom, The Politics of Disaster, but the other two I have not yet. I, I have to make a confession that this year has been a year in which my attention span, I'm working on expanding it. But uh, currently, I'm at the point where I just keep rereading books that I've already read. So, for instance, um, reading uh, The Third Reich at War, um, I'm a World War II history buff. If anyone follows me on Twitter, I talk a lot about the Battle of Stalingrad because that's kind of the epicenter of my interest. So I just keep rereading books that I've already read because it's kind of like I know where this is going. And that's nice. But your grandfather was on the beach at Normandy. Why? I, I would have thought you were a Normandy junkie because I've been to Normandy and I don't know how anyone got off that beach. I to this. I mean, it's also especially because uh, my grandfather served in the balloon barrage unit. But uh, I've always been fascinated by the Eastern Front, which I think from the American context was for a long time undercovered. But especially because Stalingrad, it's you know, you think about how in August. You know, the Nazis controlled 80% of the city of Stalingrad. And by January, basically everyone, you know, they were urging, like, please let us go and Hitler wouldn't. And I, I find that to be such a fascinating turning point of the war, especially when you know that you are fighting in a climactic battle, a truly climactic battle for the future of human civilization as we know it. And especially because you have leadership on both sides with Stalin and Hitler, who are both giant morons. You have Stalin, who is absolutely convinced that Hitler would never invade. Hitler, who has taken over control of the Wehrmacht and is saying, you know, I want to invade Stalingrad because Stalin's in the name and we need the oil feeds, but mostly because of Stalin in the name. And it just, the people who were involved in that fighting are fighting literal hand combat for months. And I've just, I find that to be such a searing story of what war really looks like. And I think that that's something that occasionally when we're thinking about war as a, you know, war as existing as a metaphor. No, 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 this wasn't metaphorical battle. This was people stabbing each other in the face in a grain elevator. And I've always found that to be so interesting. That's why, Jane, I very rarely describe anything as war because right. uh, war is very different from political discussion, debate, and even heated argument. It's just not the same, and I don't like to use war <laughs> analogies. Uh, you are from Cincinnati. Which high school did you attend in Cincinnati? Ursuline Academy. You are? Okay, I'm just checking it. I'm from Ohio. You were a good Buckeye, but you lost your way. Uh, your dad is a research librarian, and I don't know why, but he let you go to Michigan. What happened there? He did. He did. Well, he went to Northwestern, so he wasn't like tied into this either. Um, but Michigan, you know, I, 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 I dearly love my beloved University of Michigan, which is a basketball school. I don't know if you've heard basketball school, Juwan Howard, basketball school. I don't know if we have other sports. No, no, no. 
We also are a gymnastics school because they won a national title in women's gymnastics this year, but also basketball school. Do you basketball. want Harbaugh fired? No, no, I'm too tired for all of this, especially because I think that the last coaching search in 2014 was so emotionally draining for everyone involved that I'm just like, I just, I need like another year to get ready for a coaching search, especially because at this point in college football circles, who do you go after? There aren't like everyone who is a big name, they're so expensive. And so you'd be rolling the dice essentially probably on a coordinator or someone who coaches at a lower level. Like I am fast, like there's the, um, I think he just got a division one guy uh, job. There's the coach who never punts. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. But like, you don't want to try that at a school like Michigan. You're like, let's see how you do it like a smaller institution. But again, I'm just not emotionally prepared for a coaching search right now. Uh, now I don't have it in me. One of the questions I love to ask millennials uh, Jane, is where else did they apply and why did they pick the school they went to? And I have a reason for that. It's a it's a much more significant decision in those who are under the age of 35 than those who are over the age of 60. Because it was kind of right. random when you were you're my age and you're in your class of 74 in high school. What, where else did you apply and why did you pick Michigan? Uh, I was waitlisted from the University of Chicago. I applied to Ohio State. I applied to St. Louis University. I applied to, um, I think, Miami University of Ohio. I applied to Yale. And then I applied to Washington University in St. Louis. Um, and, and I picked Michigan, and this is going to be a kind of a, fun, a, a strange thing, but it was because <sighs> Michigan played hard to get. There were several universities that I applied to where they seemed to want me too much. Like, they were like, oh, yo, they, I got a call, for instance, from um, – a dean of one of Ohio State's schools, and they were so interested in talking to me, but it seemed very performative. Whereas Michigan was kind of like, yeah, you can come here. That sounds fine. And I was like, yes, let's go there. And it was the ideal distance from Cincinnati. Not too far, but not too close. An outstanding institution, one that is so embedded in its community. It is a college town. Ann Arbor, Michigan is the most college, you know, if you've gone to Ann Arbor or Madison, you know that feel of like, the college town of all college towns. And I, I loved that. I loved being in a place that was so dependent on and interwoven with the university. And that was something, um, the University of Cincinnati is increasingly more like that, really take you know the, the neighborhood of Clifton. But when I was growing up, it wasn't. And I really loved that feel. I loved also the fact that Michigan let me pursue interests my intro, you know, I wrote my, uh, I took, I did an honors undergraduate thesis on Nazi propaganda before and after the Battle of Stalingrad. And Michigan was the place where they're like, you, are you interested in this? Let's go ahead. Like, let's do this. And my interest in political science, my interest in politics and thinking about politics, I think that that was a place where I was allowed to be free to start pretty much right away pursuing those interests. Now, yeah, Jane, um, I'm a graduate of the law school at Michigan, and so I always want to know if you studied in the law library, because it was always oh, overrun by undergrads. Always overrun by yes. undergrads. Okay. It was always under, yes, and they, now they had the, I don't know if they did it when you were there, but now they have a specific section where they're like, only law students can be here, because undergrads kept going there. And then the funny thing about that law library is that it's the most quiet place on campus. So if you do anything, it sounds like a bomb went off and everyone stares at you and it's terrible. But yeah. um, so, no, I did study there quite a bit. Now, you seem like a likely candidate for law school. Uh, has that crossed your mind? Occasionally, 
But I think that the... Um, I am deeply fascinated by law and the conceit of the rule of law, which is probably why I shouldn't do it. Conceit? Uh, there are certain... Conceit? What's that mean? means that there is... I separate from our idea of what the rule of law looks like and what it actually looks like. And the more I learn about, um, you know, for instance, the invention of qualified immunity and how some people, how the rule of law occasionally applies to some people and not others, and kind of a random dependence because people are doing this. I think that for me, wanting to be engaged in, I want to be engaged in that process from the position I am in now as kind of like, as someone who can learn a lot about it, but without having to do it, if that makes sense. It does. It, it strikes me. And by the way, I'm going to have them call you on your phone because I'm losing too much of the Skype conversation. I don't want people to lose even a single word of your Jane, right? They've seen you now, and now we can put that up and people can see what you look like, but then I don't want them to miss the audio. Uh, it, it does seem to me that you would greatly benefit, if only from con law, because when I listen to the argument edition on the D.C. statehood, well, the obvious question that wasn't covered in it was a very good conversation. You're a superb moderator, and I recommend the argument to everyone as a fine podcast. No one brought up the obvious. It's just unconstitutional to legislate D.C. as a state. You, you cannot, uh, okay. you can't have D.C. as a state. Uh, if, you're, if you're in the 23rd Amendment, which you obviously know about, you know about the, right. the 23rd Amendment, you brought it up in the course of the argument. You just can't pass a statute from Congress that overrides the 23rd Amendment. So I, I hope you will consider it at some point. GW has a I know you've, you've got this great career. I talked Coleman out of going to law school because I said, why would you need law school? You, you've already got a great career in D.C. in the center of things. And you're a New York Times writer and journalist. You don't need to do it. But but I think you would greatly like con law, at least. Um, yeah, I, I, I am interested in that. And I think that for me, I, it's one of the. It's nice to be at a position in my life where there are a lot of ideas I can pursue, and I, I like that. Now, I want to tell people why you're here today. Uh, in my interview with Liz Cheney uh, on Monday, I said to her, but Congresswoman Cheney, you are a realist like your whole family, and legacy media, and by that I mean Manhattan Beltway media elites, are uniformly left, 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 and they are now extensions of the Democratic Party. You quote tweeted that and said, I know this is bog standard discourse, but I find it again amazing that, quote, the media and, quote, the super left and, quote, the Democratic Party, the real one, are synonymous in the minds of some on the right. Now, I didn't use the term super left and I didn't use the term synonymous, but you got what I was saying. My proposition right. is that legacy media, I want to set the proposition and test it with you because I don't actually want to argue with it. I want to persuade you. I think it's actually obvious and objectively true, and I, I want to persuade you of this position. My proposition for the audience is that legacy media, Manhattan Beltway elite media, is uniformly left, 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 and an extension of the Democratic Party. And that excludes Fox and the Wall Street Journal editorial page, but it does include the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journals, AP, Reuters, Bloomberg, Networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, CNN, MSNBC, the Atlantic, The New Republic, and What's Left of Poor Time Magazine. All of the Sunday shows, most of the columnists, and if you total the group, it's in the low to mid-thousands, let's say 5,000 people. Will you stipulate to my definition before we go into it, that's what I mean by legacy media, that gang of 5,000 people? Right. I, I understand what you meant. Do you think it's, it's fair to say that's roughly 5,000 people? I would say. I would say so. Okay. Do you know and follow Tom Edsel? I do. 
Okay, he's, he's an American journalist, academic. Now I know he got an opinion column at your paper, The New York Times. I interviewed him, my gosh, I've been doing this for so long, I'm ancient. I interviewed him on September 21st, 2006, Jane. And Tom said, I agree that whatever you want to call it, mainstream media presents itself as unbiased when in fact there are built into it many biases and they are overwhelming to the left. And I asked, but given that number of reporters out there, is it 10 to one Democrat to Republican, 21 Democrat to Republican? Tom Edsel said it's probably in the range of 15 to 25, one Democrat to Republican. Was he wrong? I would say not. But I think that my concern here, and I think that this is something that I'm interested in from a linguistic question. When you say, like, left, 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 what do you mean? What, what, is, what is that? So, for example, I try to, when I say, like, talk about the right, I try to avoid do that. I say, like, some on the right. Because I recognize that the right and conservatism aren't always the same thing. You know, it's one of those things where it's a, it's a organizing principle that doesn't actually organize. So there are a lot of people on the right who are very much not fans of the Republican Party because they think the Republican Party is too centrist or they think that they give up too much or something like that. So you have a host of people on the right who would say that, like, oh, I'm very right wing, but I'm not a conservative or I don't think that the Republican Party is conservative. You have all these terms for what conservatism means or what it doesn't mean that I think are really interesting and intricate. And I would propose to you that I think that with my experience being in media, that one of the the main biases, bias that I think media has in general is a bias towards kind of a centrism, a center leftism. And what I mean by that is that the media is biased towards what has already happened is probably what should keep happening towards stasis. So you have a host of people who are further on the left. If you you know if you read Jacobin or In These Times or something like that, and they are outraged with the Democratic Party all the time. You know Glenn Greenwald or something like that because they think that this is a neoliberal centrist clique that is not representative of the left. It, you know, and you see that most prominently. Uh, currently in the debates over Israel and what the left thinks about Israel and what the Democratic Party says and thinks about Israel are two very different things. So I I'm don't not, know about I'm that. But I'm it, it, attempting it, to argue that that the media is not in general pretty liberal, but I think it's a liberalism that is aimed towards, well, this has already happened, so we're just going to go along with it. If you go back to my own paper, to what my own paper wrote about homosexuality in the 1970s and 1980s and see what it writes about it now, that is because the overall Overton window on these issues has shifted and the media follows along because that's what happens. And so I think that what I am attempting to say here is that all of these term words mean things, as we've talked about, and these what I am asking for is some like definitional recognition that the Democratic Party and the media, and especially when we're talking about the media, it's interesting that the media includes some entities but doesn't include other entities, which I understand, but it's still interesting to me. And then we have the left, an entity that is constantly infuriated with both the media and the Democratic Party. I, When we tweeted back and forth, 
a host of people responded, like, you know, if the left was in charge of the Democratic Party, why would the Hillary Clinton emails be on the front page of the New York Times? Why would X happen or Y happen or anything happen? I would compare it to kind of like there are people who are rooting for the Democratic Party, and there are people who are kind of aligned with the Democratic Party out of convenience. Just as much as there are people who are diehard Republicans, and there are people who voted for Republicans because of Donald Trump, but and are only staying there because of support for Donald Trump, but otherwise aren't as interested as we've seen in 2020 down ballot elections. So no, I think uh, Jane, that's what I'm saying. But my statement was the media is left, 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 an extension of the Democratic Party. And this is the first of many times I may say this is an interview, not a debate. I want to know what you think. People know what I think. They can hear 15 hours a week of me. Uh, I want to know what you think. So my definition of left, left, left is left of center and that the media is an extension of the Democratic Party is the operative defining term there. I want to go through an exercise with you, but I'll need your cooperation. It's one that I use. I've been teaching law school for 25 years. It's Socratic, but it requires rather rapid response, intuitive answers. It's not a test. It's not a grade. You can go back and change them later. But just give me your gut feeling on these percentage questions I'm going to ask you, because then we can use that set of responses to reason further about whether it's accurate to say that the legacy media is left, 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 an extension of the Democratic Party. What percentage of the elite media? What percentage? This is a guess. Again, I'm not holding you. You can come back and say, no, I was wrong about that later. What percentage do you intuit of the elite media voted for Donald Trump in 2020? If we're calling those 5,000 people? Yeah. Like that. Of the group of people who voted, oh, I would say 2%. 2% okay. of the group about- of people because there are a host of people within elite media vote because of reasons. So I would say yep. 2% of those who voted. How about in 2016? Hmm. I would think it actually might go a little bit higher in 2016 because the idea of Donald Trump was different. I think for many people it was different from what actually happened. I would go up to 4% on that. Okay. How about Mitt Romney in 2012? But then, ooh, Mitt Romney in 2012, I would go up as high as, for self-reported, I would go up to have, Seven, eight percent, because McCain, I think that McCain and 08. Again, McCain, I'm doing this quickly, and we'll come back. McCain yeah. and 08. Oh, four percent. W in either election. I think that would be a little bit higher. I think that in 2004, I think that he could have, from again, legacy media who vote. I would say seven to nine percent. Okay, I love that you're doing this with me. Thank you. A lot of media refuse to play this uh, exercise, but it's very useful for the audience. What percentage of that legacy elite media are pro-choice, do you guess? I would say probably with pro-choice meaning... uh, Pro-abortion rights. Yeah. Writ large, I would say 78%. How about own a gun? Oh, I would say... Interestingly, I would say that probably about 10% would own a gun. What percentage of elite media favor confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett? 5%. What percentage of elite media favor confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh? Ooh, 3%. What percentage favored confirmation of Gorsuch? 6%, I would say. Okay, and what percentage favored holding open the seat of Justice Scalia as Leader McConnell did over the course of the presidential election? Four percent, I would say. Okay, 
what percentage are solidly pro-Israel? I mean, solidly pro-Israel, like Hugh Hewitt pro-Israel in the current war. Hmm. 12%. Okay. What percentage? And, and you... again, we're going by the Hugh Hewitt standard of what that right. means. Yep. For yep. the record. For the record. What percentage do you guess? And again, it's guessing. Jane is doing something which is wonderful. It allows conversation to flourish after I'm done with my list. What percentage thinks Israel is blocking a two-state solution? Hmm. I would say probably about 55 to 60%. Okay. That's a significant uptick from your others. What percentage are weekly church or synagogue goers or mosque attenders or temple uh, attenders do you into it? I would say 35%. Okay. What percentage do you think think climate change is a, quote, existential threat? 70, 75%. Okay. What percentage do you think believe that Venezuela is a totalitarian state and would say so out loud? Increasingly, I would say probably about 50% now. This probably okay. would not have been said when um, Sean Penn was going to Venezuela, but probably more so now. Okay. Again, we're talking for those who are just tuning in. Um, what percentage of elite media, legacy media, as previously defined, these 5,000 people who make the news, favor building the border wall to its proposed length of 850 to 900 miles? Ooh, that would be pretty low. Um, I would say 8%. Okay. What percentage think taxes need to be raised significantly on people making, say, $150,000 or more a year? 45%, because you have people in elite media who are making $150,000 a year. <laughs> You're right. Uh, do you know what stepped-up basis is, before I ask you about this? Do you know what stepped-up basis is? I do not. Okay, never mind. Um uh, it's, uh, I won't ask the question. What percentage of legacy media favor upping the death tax? Hmm. As a hypothetical concept, probably 60%. As people with the ability to inherit money, probably like 30%. Okay. What percentage believe in affirmative action? I always define it for the audience. That is taking race into account in the awarding of benefits or the afflicting of penalties. What percentage believe that affirmative action is a good idea? Hmm. I would say about 65%. But again, that was what they would say, and then there's what they believe. And I think oh, those might be two different numbers. Good distinction. Very smart. I think that's true. What percentage of elite media think that reinvigorating the JCPOA is a good idea? Hmm. Oh, interesting. A pause as she considers Iran and the United States and Biden and Obama and Trump. What? It's, I can hear you I thinking, think, Jane. I think, I mean, hmm. Again, this is one of those, I, I do this all the time, but one of those, like, would, what would people say? And then what would people, like, say in the privacy of, I don't know, the confessional? Uh, I would say that, let's put that at best 50%. Do you miss going to confession, by the way? Occasionally. Um, I think that that's something, though, that it's an interesting, con- interesting conceptualization of how, I mean, I think that that's something, like, in part, Protestantism objects to is the idea that you need to go to a person who will then tell you this. But there is something very nice about that. 
Yeah, you know, I, le- I left the church for 15 years until Archbishop Chaput persuaded me to come back. I was so mad at the bishops. They were so left wing that I finally went back. And yes, I had missed the sacraments and I had missed confession. I found that to be the case. It's a grace. Uh, back to my, my, my list. What percentage of elite media defined as those 5,000 people that work for right. the networks? Uh, fear that the Chinese Communist Party will order the invasion of Taiwan in the next 12 to 36 months. I would say probably 40%, because um, I think that, keep in mind that the New York Times and a host of other entities, we have zeros in Taiwan, and that is a massive concern. You know, if you know folks in, in Taiwan, that is a concern, and that is something that people are thinking about a lot. Very astute. You're right. What, that's what I would guess, too. What percentage, it's a guess, so you're not right. You're, you and I, by right, I mean you and I are agreeing on the guess. What percentage do you think in the elite media believe that Ronald Reagan deserves the lion's share of credit for bringing about the downfall of the Soviet Union? Oh, that is a fascinating—you don't think the Soviet Union itself deserves the lion's share of credit for bringing down the Soviet Union? Well, it's an because interview, I, not a debate. That, that's, a, that's the point. That's the point. Which, I would which say th- that I would say that probably thirty percent would say that. Yep. I would I, I would say that the Soviet system was doomed largely from the start. And when you have that demarcation of the nomenclatura driving around in fancy cars and people unable I mean, if you've ever seen Soviet cars, my goodness. But like I think that the, the writing was on the wall pretty early. That's pretty much what elite media think. I, 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 that's, I think you're high on 30%. I think it's down around 10 What percentage of elite media think and are willing to say out loud that pornography is a terrible thing for whatever reason? I would think that that number would actually be pretty high. Um, I would say that for 50, that would be about 50%. And Nick Kristoff among them. Be, yes. Nick Kristoff among them. I would think that that would be, yeah. You know, my colleague Nick Kristoff kind of, there's, the that argument, there's kind of the old school Andrea Dworkin argument regarding it. So I'd say for various reasons, about half. And there's the old school Christian argument that it's evil. Right. But yeah, so, yeah. Uh, what, what percentage of elite media favors legalizing marijuana for recreational use? Oh, now 70 yeah. percent. That's all. I think there's 30 percent that's concerned about what that would actually mean. But I would say that, like. Event like if you got into definitions of what legalization would mean, because legalization would then imply regulation. It's not decriminalization. You'd probably go up to like 90 percent at this point. Subtle, astute. OK, what percentage thinks and this is a complicated one, but you'll get it. What percentage of elite media think that court packing means something other than expanding the number of justices on the Supreme Court? Means something other than that? Hmm. Yeah. Not very many. Um, let's put that 10 percent. OK, that's the first significant departure from the Democratic Party. Uh, what percentage of the elite media condemn Dan Rather for Rathergate, do you guess? Outwardly condemned? Oh, that's low. Fifth, like 10, 8 percent. Inwardly, more. But again, what you say and what you do are two different things for many people. Agree. What percentage of elite media condemned big tech censorship of the Hunter Biden story? Hmm. I'm almost done, by the way. I got like six more. Eight hmm. percent. Again, this is very obscure. What percent 
care about property rights? Uh, I think that there is, again, there's the concept of property rights, and then there's their own property rights, which are, again, two different things. Um, So I would say the idea, that's probably like 15%, but then when it's their property, that goes up to like 60%. (laughs) That might be 100% when it's their property. Get your house off my property line. Uh, Those are the summer houses on the the vineyard where they're worried about whether or not an inch of their house has been taken. Uh, What percentage do you think of elite media believe that Candy Crowley inappropriately intervened in the 2012 debate between President Obama and then Governor Romney? I love it when you think these things through because that's an interesting. Well, I'm just thinking about like one of the strange and mysterious things about elite media or media such as it exists in the terms that you've given is that the turnover is absolutely tremendous. So I'm trying to think like if you were doing this job in 2012, um, I would say probably 10 percent, pretty low. Pretty low. What about the percentage of elite media that believe that believe that Chris Wallace favored Biden over Trump? believe um i would say probably 55 percent okay interesting what percentage of elite media believe that the presidential debate commission favored biden over trump that would be low uh probably eight percent okay what percent thought president trump colluded with russia Sixty, sixty-five percent. Okay, and what percentage of elite media took the Steele dossier seriously, even after the first wave of questions were raised about it? Hmm. Probably again, six, like sixty, sixty-five percent. Okay. Now I'm interested. I want to play for you a couple of of clips, um, maybe five or six. Actually, are you pressed for time? I'm not pressed for time. I, I love this. Uh, Smart young journalist who I think I'm going to persuade that that the media is an extension of the Democratic Party and is left, left, left. I think I'm going to persuade you of that, by the way, Jane. I uh, am. I, I do have a cutoff in about, I would say, about 10 minutes. But Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. All right. All right. So let me get let me get to this. I'll just play Matt Continenti. I've got like seven of these. Let me play Matt Continenti uh, cut number uh, 25, when I read to him our exchange, Matt said this. Uh, well, she's wrong. <laughs> you, look at, you look at the networks, you look at the newspapers. In fact, many times uh, the, uh, the media is the dog and the Democratic Party is the tail. I think the Democratic Party is taking the cues from the media about what they should be concerned about, what they should be um, interested in advocating. This is a problem for the Democratic Party. I mean, you see you see now the House, it's a very narrow majority for the Democrats. It depends on these swing districts, Hugh. If they are to follow the cues from the media and from the squad on the issue of Israel, I think it would be a disaster for them, not only in the short term uh, and their credibility in national security, but also going into the midterm election, because it just shows that they are kowtowing to the left. You know, And uh, the same goes for Biden. He has enough problems on his hands. Um, Creating daylight between U.S. and Israel would just increase them, I think. In the same show, I asked Fred Barnes about uh, our exchange on Twitter. Fred said this, cut 28. Uh, Definitely so. Uh, Remember, uh, think about uh, how 
uh, Barack Obama acted as president, uh, did he act like a a, uh, a far left president who was being uh, uh, cheered on and, and backed by uh, the mainstream media? No, uh, I mean, he was backed by them, but uh, but he wasn't overdoing it. Uh, his big issue was health care. Uh, he did in his second term negotiate uh, uh, what I think is a terrible deal with uh, Iran. But he was not a far left president, and 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 the and the uh, uh, the media wasn't there. It is there now, and and one of the reasons is because of the weakness of Biden. You know, Biden is okay. Just cut out there. So, Jane, uh, given your responses on what the media uh-huh. thinks. And given Matt and Fred and me and, and, and Fred and I, Fred's older than I am. I'm older than Matt. Matt, so all three of us are right. older than you. We've watched the media go left, 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 and now has become an echo chamber of the Democratic Party. I think you proved my case with your intuitions because your intuitions, which are guard railed by media training and a very good career, I think you're very accurate, very fair. When you have quoted me in the past, you quoted what I intended to say, not some throw off line, which is a good, you know, a good definition of integrity of is whether or not a journalist attempts to find out what someone's trying to say and accurately represents that. And you meet my standard for integrity. But I think you proved the case today, and I provided supplemental evidence that the, uh, the Democratic Party is left, 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 and the media is left, 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 and an extension of the Democratic Party. I would also say, though, that that if I asked you a series of questions regarding to what the Republican Party platform, such as it existed in 2016, not 2020, and what conservatism is, because I've actually I had a great conversation with Matt Continetti uh, when I was at Vox about what conservatism is. And we had this long conversation about how conservatives have a difficult time defining what it is, but are very good at defining what it isn't. And I think that for me, what, I, what I'm trying to get across here is that definitionally, one of the challenges I think that liberalism and the left face is that a lot of the pieces that you asked me about with regard to, say, abortion rights or affirmative action, yeah, that's pretty standard liberal conceit. But I would also say that for, like, the super left left people, they're like, why don't we have Medicare for all? Why don't we have single payer? Why aren't you fighting for this? And I think that what this all becomes is a matter of degree. And it's much more – and, you know, it's hard to get across and it's complicated. But I think that if you talk to people – I was just, you know, double-checking – on The Intercept or on Jacobin or something like that. And currently they are infuriated the Democratic Party for being neoliberal shills. Now, what that actually means, who can say? But I think that this gets into an interesting disagreement because I would say that, like, is the media following where people where the Democratic Party is trying to go? I don't know, but I do think in some ways they're mirroring each other. And you see that in, for example, I thought it was interesting that Matt brought up concerns about the midterms, which I think are interesting because, as we know, midterms are very rarely determined by uh, foreign policy. Even if we want them to be, even if we think that we've done something tremendous, or even if we think that this is the moment in which either party is going to win or lose based on a foreign policy matter – that tends to not be how voters work. And we saw that voters are complex entities. We saw a host of voters in Texas and Florida who simultaneously voted for Trump and to raise the minimum wage and to legalize medical marijuana. And so I think that these issues of where the Democratic Party is going, 
where the left left is going and where the media is going, they're intersecting but not overlapping, if that makes sense. It does, but I, I go back to our original uh, intersection where I had made the statement uh, the Democratic Party is left, 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 and an extension. Uh, the media is uh, major media, legacy media is left, 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 and an extension of the Democratic Party. I don't even think it's an arguable proposition. And definitions, of course, are the last refuge of people who are cornered in an argument. And I don't know that you're cornered. You want to point out that Glenn and other hard super left people, that was your term, not mine, critique the left, 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 and the Democratic Party. My proposition is simply it's manifestly and objectively true that legacy media is an extension of the Democratic Party and is left, left, left of center. Now, I'm, in, I'm intrigued, Jane. You've never asked me what it can I, I heard that in a few of your podcasts, and I thought that, that Jamie was insufficiently adamant about this. The Republican Party is the party of freedom, and the Republican Party is the party of the Constitution. I am in for in favor of the Constitution as understood and amended by the Civil Rights Amendment and subsequent amendments, including the extension of the vote to women and to 18-year-olds, and by the interpretation of the court over the last many years to get to where it was at the time of the election of 2016. Conservatives want to defend freedom, that Constitution, and the national security of the United States. I've always found it to be pretty interesting that it was difficult for some people to be for that. I mean, I'm just, I'm Berkey, and it's not hard to be, but... At the end of the day, and I'm down to my last five minutes with you, have I persuaded you why center-right people, and I consider myself NPR for conservatives, that's why I do conversations with you and with Nick Kristoff and with, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I bring on everybody. I want, I want everyone to hear everything on the interview with Hugh Hewitt and on my radio show. Do you, have I objectively persuaded you why center-right people believe the media is left, 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 and an extension of the Democratic Party? Because we intuit, actually— even worse opinions than you do, and your scorecard would say you believe the media is left, 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 and an extension of the Democratic Party. You, mm, you have persuaded me that this is what you believe. Yes, yes. That I, I completely believe that this is where the center right is coming from, as we've defined it here. But if you went back over and looked at your intuitions about where legacy media is, your intuitions are based on, I understand you to be broadly read, deeply informed, and very serious about your work. I'm interested that you've been reading in high tech recently about Section 230. Have you read The Age of Surveillance Capitalism yet by Shoshana Rubin? It's a a nightmare book, but it's good. I am am deeply interested in this particular issue, especially because I think that – it gets into, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm fascinated by Section 230 is that it's, it's a rule and a law that we were all very agreed upon until we all very much weren't. And it's, I, I always get concerned when both Democrats and Republicans are very much, we got to do something about it, uh, but for very different reasons, because we got to do something about it is one of our worst political instincts as humans. Well, Franklin Four, when he was, uh, I mean, when Secretary Clinton was on the Hugh Hewitt show after the election, we agreed on one thing, which is that Franklin Four, World Without Mind, was a must-read book. Since then, uh, Professor Rubin has come out with The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and it's it's a must-read. I mean, she's a neo-Marxist, and it's a thousand pages long, so I got to tell you, it, it's not exactly a walk in the park set aside a month. But Josh Hawley's book is very good on this, The, the Tyranny of Big Tech, and I was interested that you were reading in it and interested in it. But I, I, going back, you're, you're an informed, you're serious, you do good reporting, you have integrity. When you review your list of percentage guesses, I think 
you're very sophisticated at absorbing media, and most Americans just watch it at a less sophisticated level. They're not even going to give the media the scores you gave them, and the scores you gave them would put them on the left, left, left side of the American electorate. I mean, I think that that's something I'm, and it's also interesting, though, because a point that I would want to make is that, again, this is what people might say. And then, you know, when you were asking about property rights or these specific elements that I think would fall into the kind of conservative liberal difference here, it's interesting to me how much this differs, you know, what people would say and then what people would actually think. Yeah, and by the way, I gave you the wrong name. Shoshana Zuboff, Z-U-B-O-F-F is the age of surveillance capitalism. Yeah, but, but when I was asking you that, I just think rather than asking your opinions, I want to know what you thought the media thought. And so you gave me your intuitive answers. And oh. that's you're, you are to the left of most of America. Seventy five million Americans voted for Trump. And so you're to the left of and you think the media is that intuitively biased of course, the people who voted for Trump is going to think it's a wasteland of reason and, and a dark hole of objectivity. And so I don't think you can actually disagree anymore with my statement to Liz Cheney. I can still disagree. I, you know, contain multitudes, Hugh. I contain multitudes. <laughs> uh, I, last I question. Also think that, I also think that I, I just want to be clear here that I think that my personal politics, I think, would probably lean left of your audience, but then on a specific issues having to do with gun rights, um, you know, I'm extremely opposed to gun control legislation for a host of different issues. But I also think that occasionally where, where government gets involved, and we've seen this with Republicans and Democrats, is that the government is supposed to step in and regulate when people are being mean or something is irritating or we have to do something. And so I think that that's where my concern is here, which would probably on a lot of issues fall to the left of your audience. Sure. But if your audience favors you know, regulation of tech companies, well, I do not. And I think that the desire for further regulation, especially by the members of Congress who are still trying to figure out how to turn on their phone, I think raises a lot of concerns. Uh, different so the, you know, different the question. Que the rule yeah, different of question. consequences always shows up. A different question, because boy, oh boy, if you let this gang regulate that problem. But and I've sat down and I've talked about this with Mark Zuckerberg and Peter Thiel. And I, I know the, the problems. But if you listen to Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, you will be scared. You will be scared. Uh, did you know last last thing, Jane, did you know that five percent on average of the apps that you download contain terms and conditions which allow the app to automatically turn on your audio and video. I did know that. And that's that scares the hell out of me. Terms and conditions. That's a, it's, it's fascinating to me. It's, a lot of people don't read terms and conditions, and a lot of people don't read the terms of service. Always I, read the terms of do service. Do you? Have you I ever do. tried to read the updates for iOS 406 update when it comes through, or do you just click on it? Oh, I always read it because I am me and I read everything. Oh, Jane, I've given my house away. They own my children, all that. <laughs> Jane, I know you got to run. The argument is wonderful. Congratulations on a launch. For a Michigan person, you're remarkably crazy. Whenever Jonathan Chait and I mix it up, it gets, uh, it gets ugly. But uh, I always put that down to his having gone to the U, but you're disproving that. And, uh, and I, I appreciate your, your time, your candor, and I hope you'll come back. I absolutely will. Thank you so much, Hugh.
Thank you, Jane Costin. You can follow her on Twitter at Jane Costin. This has been The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. Andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888 You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.